things, doesn't it? You'd be slaughtered. Whoa, 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 like, hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Maybe I am in the family, right? You, brought, you bust out kind of the family crest and the flag, and you start waving it, right? And I'm, yes, I'm a part of this family. The inheritance is mine. In fact, as we experience in life, right, when there's a great inheritance, there are family members coming from all over who have just remembered that they are actually part of the family as well, right? They have just remembered that they have now a right to some of the inheritance as well. When there's a great inheritance, you don't hear anyone complaining about things not being fair. No one is protesting, well, hey, I didn't make those decisions and investments. Why should I benefit from the work of another? How quickly our attitudes change in regards to corporate solidarity when we go from talking about debt to talking about an inheritance. And church, I start with that example this morning because both emotions are going to be felt by us as we look through this passage together. When we look at what we have received in Adam, there will be a protest that arises in our hearts of it not being fair. And yet we will see that we have to come to accept what our lot was in Adam for us to truly appreciate and enjoy the glorious grace and inheritance we have received in Christ. Now I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Romans. Let me refresh you a bit on the context of this passage. Paul has been teaching through the last couple of chapters on the doctrine of justification. This great truth of how we can be declared righteous with God. And he's taught us that we can be declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. There are not multiple ways to get right with God. There is not a righteousness in ourselves that we can muster up. No, it is through faith in Jesus and it is through receiving his righteousness that we are justified and become right with God. It is only through the one God-man, Jesus Christ. And this passage that we're preaching through today, you'll notice that word one. It's just, you, you see it all over. I circled it in my text maybe 11, 12 times, the word one. You see, Paul is trying to now answer a possible question that could arise from his teaching on justification. The question that could arise is, how can the work of one man benefit us all? Like, that doesn't... That doesn't really make sense, right? How can the work of one man benefit us all? How can Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, how can it serve all his people so well? And so what Paul's doing here is in order to help us understand our present and future life in Christ, he takes us back to the beginning of time. He takes us back to the garden to teach us what happened to us and to our world when Adam first sinned. And in learning what happened to us in Adam, we come to more fully appreciate and understand what has happened to us in Christ. And my prayer for us this morning is that we might see the, the glory of his grace as we learn that sin has abounded in this world, but grace has abounded all the more. Amen? So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. 
even as I'm mentioning that, the Lord's, I'm, I'm also going to lift up a prayer for my, my friend, my brother, my neighbor, uh, Pastor Phil uh, Curtis. He's the pastor of uh, First Assembly's God of Franklin. The last six months, he's been ill. He's been recovering. Uh, he hasn't been able to preach, and this morning is his first time back in the pulpit. And so let's, I'm going to lift up Pastor Phil uh, as I'm just very joyful and happy for him uh, to be proclaiming the word again. So let's pray. Father God, we do ask, Lord, that as we come to this passage of Scripture, uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us, God, understand your truth here this morning. Father, much of this is so foundational to our faith, and so I ask, Lord, that you would, you would guide and guard my words, that I would not overcomplicate anything that, that you have meant to make clear. I ask, Lord, that you would not allow me to speak anything that is not your truth, and I ask, God, that you would attend my words with power, that you would open up our eyes to see you, you'd open up our ears to hear you, and that your word would nourish us, awaken us, revive us this morning. Father, I ask for my, my brother, Pastor Phil, God, that you would give strength and energy to his body, Lord, that he would uh, proclaim your truth boldly that you would fill him, Lord, with your joy and your peace and your comfort and your strength. And may this morning be a great day of celebration and praising you for bringing him um, to a full recovery. So we praise you for what you have done and what you are doing. We ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans 5, verse 12. God's word says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Here we see the origin story of how sin and death entered into our world. You can look all around our world and you can see sin and you can see death everywhere and you can wonder how and why the world is the way it is. And in order for us to understand the present, we have to look back to the past, right? We have to go back to the beginning. And this is such an important and foundational thing to do. Anytime you're studying any doctrine and how it applies to the present, you must look back to the beginning and you must look forward to the future. All right? It's what theologians called, uh, you know, looking forward to the future is eschatology, study of the last things. Looking to the beginning is called protology, all right? study of the first things. That might be a, a new word for some of us, right? Protology, looking back to the first things. Now, word of warning, when you're typing in protology, most devices will autocorrect that to proctology. And that is a study of something very different, okay? So theologians call protology, eschatology. This is how we understand our present. We look to our past. We look to our future. And things start to come into a bit more of focus. And that's what Paul is trying to help us do. And he says here in verse 12, he says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man. 
Now that one man is Adam, as we learn in the next couple of verses, right? Adam was the first human being on this earth. He was created in the image of God, which means he was created to reflect God's perfect character to his world, and he was created to be a representative ruler over God's creation. And there was no sin or death in the world at this time. Everything was good. Adam was to rule over God's creation, and God placed him in the garden to work it and keep it, and he gives him a command in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now at this point, Eve had not yet been created. And so on this Mother's Day, we will not cast blame on our great-great-grandmother Eve for the mess we find ourselves in. Right? No, God places the responsibility on Adam. God gives the command to Adam before Eve was created. And so later when we see the serpent come and deceive Eve, we see that Eve did not know God's command exactly. She actually adds to it that they weren't even supposed to touch the tree. And that's not what God had instructed Adam. And so one of the first failures in the garden was that Adam failed to communicate well with his wife. Happy Mother's Day. I didn't think I was preaching a Mother's Day sermon, but there it is for you. And this really, I mean, if we be honest, is the start of so many failures and sin and death coming into the world. So many failures and sin and death coming into a family. He failed to teach God's word to his family. And so the serpent comes along and deceives Eve and causes her to question and distrust God. And her along with Adam, who's standing right there as well, they take and eat of the tree that they were not supposed to eat from. And through this act of disobedience towards God, sin enters into and invades our world. Now this doesn't fully explain the origin of evil. Because this is not the first sin in the universe that is committed. Satan and his angelic host, his fallen angels, have rebelled against God. That has already taken place. And we will save that for a talk on another day. But here we learn that it is through Adam's sin that sin invades our world. That's most literally what verse 12 says. When it says, just as sin came into the world, it means just as sin invaded our world. God's creation was good, but through Adam, sin invaded our world. Verse 12 goes on to say that then death through sin invaded our world as well. For this was the consequence that God gave, right? Genesis 2 verse 17, we just read it. He said, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Paul will reiterate this later in the next chapter in Romans 6.23 where he says, for the wages of sin is death. Now Adam and Eve did not drop dead on the spot when they sinned, but they certainly started to die in that moment. They were cast out from the garden. They were separated from the presence of God. 
And by being separated from the source of life, they would inevitably die one day. You see, death begins with spiritual death. It begins with a separation from God. And it then ultimately results in physical death as well. And this is what Adam and Eve experienced. Sin and death invaded the world. And yet the news gets even worse. Verse 12 says, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death, a spiritual death and inevitable physical death, spread to all mankind. Why? He says, because all sinned. Well, wait a minute, you might say. I didn't sin when Adam sinned. I wasn't even alive. I mean, only Adam and Eve are alive at this point. And yet Paul says that when Adam sinned, all of us sinned. That verb sinned in the original Greek is written in a tense, which signifies a one-time completed action in the past. Right? He's, he's not teaching here that because Adam and Eve sinned, that we will all follow their bad example and sin as well, although we know that to be true. Other passages of Scripture teach us that. We have all personally committed sin. But that's not what he's teaching here in this verse. He's teaching that when Adam sinned, all of humanity sinned. And he tries to help us understand this in verse 14 explaining that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Remember what Paul's trying to ultimately do. He's, he's ultimately explaining to us what Christ has done for us. And he's doing this by comparing and contrasting what Adam had done for us. Right? He's pulling Adam and Jesus to the forefront of human history, and he's saying what these two men did had far greater consequences and results for more than just their own lives. Which, which is not necessarily God's general rule with most other people. We can acknowledge that. Elsewhere in the Bible, like Ezekiel 18 and Deuteronomy 24, we see that in general. God does not desire to punish a child for the sins of their father. Now, there's no escaping the fact that there are consequences of sin that affect all the generations after us, but in general, God's not condemning you for what your dad did. But Paul's saying Adam and Jesus are different. What they did, they each did as representatives for a great multitude of people. Adam was a representative of the entire human race. And when he sinned, humanity sinned because he was our representative. And the wages of sin is death. So now, every human being that has ever been born has been born spiritually dead, separated from God, and will one day physically die. And because we are born separated from God, we are also born with a propensity to sin. We have a, a bent, a, a, a 
prone to rebel and distrust God. Some have called this an, an inherited corruption. We sinned in Adam. We are born separated from God, and therefore we inevitably sin ourselves as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were, as Paul calls us when writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, verse 3, he says that we were by nature, not nurture, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul will reiterate this in verse 19. If you look down in Romans 5, down to verse 19, he says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Were made could also be translated appointed. And it's written in the passive tense, meaning that God is the active agent. Humanity is the passive agent. Through Adam's sin, we were made or appointed Sinners by God. And Paul says, if you don't believe me, just look at human history. <laughs> look at what happened after Adam and Eve sinned. This wasn't just a one-time slip-up and then they got back on track. This was an invasion of sin and death into the world. Look what he goes on to say in Romans 5, verse 13. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Again, we see something different about Adam, right? Who was a type of the one who was to come. Right? The fact that people were dying from Adam to Moses proves that sin was in the world, Right? Because the wages of sin is death. However, the sin that the people after Adam were committing were not exactly like the transgression of Adam because the law had not yet been given. However, God had still given them a conscience. We've learned in Romans, he's given them creation, right? He's been made, he's been made, made things evident about his divine power and nature, right? However, their sin was not exactly like Adam's because they weren't breaking explicit commands, but they still died. They still died. And their sinning wasn't exactly like Adam's either because Adam was different. He was a type of the one who was to come. In the same way that Jesus serves as a representative for his people, and I'm sure you've learned about that plenty in church, in the same way that Jesus serves as a representative for his people, Adam represented the entire human race. And church, we are going to celebrate the glory of God's grace for the fact that Christ is now our representative, but we have to first understand who we were before we were in Christ. We were in Adam. And in Adam, sin and death and condemnation had spread to us. We sinned when Adam sinned. We were spiritually dead when we were born. We have a propensity and bent to distrust God and rebel against him. Death spread to all men because all sinned. 
And my initial reaction to this is, I don't like it. That's not fair. I mean, I warned you of this. I warned myself, and yet it's still, it's upon us, right? And this is, listen, this is such a difficult concept, especially for us in the West, because we live in such an individualistic culture, right? I, I, I've read that, you know, it's difficult for us to get our minds around this, but I've read that others in different cultures, like in the East and in Africa, uh, they don't struggle with this like we do in America because they understand solidarity and unity within a family, right? They're used to having a head of household who serves as the, family, as, as the family's representative, and the success or the demise of the family rises or falls with their representative head. Other Christians can, can get this a little bit quicker than we can. It's, it's hard for us. We, I mean, every, we, we live as if we're an island, right? And we struggle with the idea that God would relate to us through a representative. We initially struggle with the idea that God would relate to us through a representative. Paul has pulled Adam and Christ to the forefront of human history, and he's helped us to see that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. This is, this is the origin story of how our world and our hearts became ruled by sin and death. We were in Adam. And listen, if you, if you find yourself right now fighting against wanting to be represented by Adam, like, hang, hang with me. Don't push them all out of the house, all the lawyers and debt collectors out of the house quite yet. Because I believe you will see just how glorious and gracious it is of God to relate to us through a representative it will actually be very good news for us. So hang with me. Look at verse 15. Romans 5, verse 15. He says, But the free gift, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, right? he's been making this much more argument all throughout Romans 5, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Right? We've talked about how condemnation and justification, these are legal terms. They are the opposite of each other. In Adam, we were condemned. In Jesus Christ, we are justified. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now let's stop there for a second. Let me challenge you a little bit. Does verse 18 that we just read, does it teach universalism? 
does it teach that every single person throughout the history of the world will be justified by Christ's work? And listen, if, if verse 18 was an island, you could think that. You could, right? This is why we have to value the whole counsel of God's word. It, it has been said that every heretic has a verse. And this would be where the universalist would go. But I do not believe that this is what Paul is teaching for a few different reasons. For one reason, the New Testament writers often use universal language like all people or the whole world in order to teach that these things are true for both Jews and Gentiles, for all nations. Remember, the early church, especially the early Roman church, was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and Paul is trying to show them how they have been unified in Christ. Right? These things are not just true for this one group. This is true for Jew and Gentile, all nations. So that's one reason I think this does not teach universalism. The, the universal language is used oftentimes to not reference every single individual who has ever lived. Another reason is because of what Paul teaches elsewhere. And in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, speaking of those who don't know God or obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, he writes that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But this does not seem like Paul is a universalist. And then finally, in the context of Romans, if you can look back in Romans 5, just up a verse at verse 17, he speaks of those who reign in life he speaks of those who reign in life. They will be the ones who've received the abundance of his grace and his free gift of righteousness, implying that there will be those who do not receive it, but instead reject it. And so no, verse 18 is not teaching universalism, although some have tried to pluck it out of the text and make it serve those purposes. But that's not what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to get, us, get our, our minds around Jew and Gentile, all nations. This is true for them. As one trespass led to condemnation, so one act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification. Look at now verse 19. He says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. We've, we've, I've already talked about this, right? Passive tense. God is the active agent. Mankind is the passive recipient here. For as, for as by the man, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, or appointed sinners by God. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, appointed righteous by God. Paul, all throughout Romans thus far, has been trying to teach us that Jews and Gentiles alike all stand as guilty sinners condemned in the courtroom of God. He's been trying to show us that no one is righteous, no, not one, that the invasion of sin and death into our world has affected and infected us all. And so therefore, if anyone is going to be right with God, they're going to have to receive a righteousness that is outside of themselves. They're going to have to, by faith, receive the righteousness of Christ, right? You must, by grace through faith, be united to Christ. 
I mean, all throughout the New Testament, we see the language of Christians being described as in Christ, in Christ. All the blessings that flow to us flow to us because we are in Christ. And here is where Paul is trying to help us understand why being in Christ is so important. And it's because if you are not in Christ, you are in Adam. And in Adam... You stand under the reign of sin and death. In Adam, you stand condemned. In Adam, there's no amount of good works or righteous living you could do and be declared right in God's sight. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he clarifies and summarizes this passage for us. He says, look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. That is the parallel here. Oh, the glorious grace of God. Now let's talk for a second what what purpose, for what purpose has God displayed the glory of his grace through triumphing over sin and death as a representative of his people? Because this is the glorious news that Jesus Christ, no, is our representative. Like through, through faith, we are transferred from being in Adam to now in Christ. And we can celebrate that, that Christ is our representative. For what purpose has God displayed the glory of his grace and triumphed over sin and death and become our representative? Well, as verse 17 says, it's so that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness would reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, you were not created to be ruled by sin. You were created and then raised in Christ to reign in life. And so as we think through some practical application, as we think through, you know, how does this practically apply, this truth about how sin and death entered and spread in our world to our hearts, like, we have to understand that this truth it helps us to better reign in life. Because this helps us explain and understand our world. It helps us to explain and understand our hearts. It makes us wise. It helps us not to be naive. It helps us reign in life. It helps us to tend and keep what God has given to us. I mean, this, this truth gives us wisdom as we set up civil governments, right? C.S. Lewis thought that the truth of original sin was one of the main reasons to set up a, a democratic government, right? To have checks and balances, to not put power just in one man's hand, right? For the truth that sin has affected and infected all people. To be naive about the effects of sin and death in this world, it will cause us to be foolish representative rulers of Christ. Some have foolishly taught that if we could just free ourselves from religion or free ourselves from any kind of authority and just educate ourselves more, that then a perfect utopian society would come about and flourish. 
But this has never happened anywhere, ever, and never will apart from Christ. We cannot pursue the kingdom without the king because sin and death have invaded this world and the only solution to this problem is that the grace of God would come to us through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Adam, we were condemned. In Adam, we were spiritually dead. In Adam, we made choices and decisions out of a nature that was prone to sin. And believing this truth, what it does is it humbles us. It humbles us. And let me tell you, it is the humble who will reign in life well and with wisdom. It's why we believe that it is best to lead a church with a plurality of elders. Yes, for those in Christ, they've been released from the power of sin. They've been released from enslavement to sin, but the presence of sin still remains. And so even as we lead a church, we know we need accountability. We need mutual submission to one another. We need to be humbled by this truth in order to reign in life well through Jesus Christ. Whether it's leading ourselves, leading our families, leading our churches, leading our civil governments, the truth of this passage should cause us to be humble and it will help us reign in life well. The truth of this passage should also cause us to be thankful. To be thankful. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, right? Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. I mean, this should cause an enormous amount of gratitude and thankfulness to overflow in your heart. And I'm telling you, a heart that is continuously overflowing with thanksgiving will reign well in life. A heart that is continuously overflowing with thanksgiving and gratitude will be content in Christ, like we talked about last week. Church, the fact that Christ is your representative, this should cause us to be humbled, and it should cause us to be thankful. But that's not all. We're going to see another thing here. Now, I do not believe that it is difficult to convince you of the horror and the evil and the darkness that exists in this world because of sin and death entering in. I don't think I need to try to convince you of that, right? You could just say, turn on the news or whatever you do to get your news, right? But listen, that's not the main point of this passage. It's not the main point. Of so I know I've spent a decent amount of time on it trying to help us understand it, but that's not the main point of this passage. The teaching, Paul's teaching on the entrance of sin, the invasion of sin and death, has all been a setup to show the abundance and the glory of the grace of God. And Paul says here that, that even the law helped to do this as well. Look back at Romans 5. In Romans 5.20, he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, you can imagine the Roman church hearing this for the first time. Some of those who grew up in a Jewish household, they're sitting there, they're listening to this, and they might have been listening to all this Adam and Jesus talk, and they've been thinking, hey, what about Moses? Right? What, what about Moses? Paul, what about Moses? Paul's like, I didn't forget about Moses. The law came through Moses, and it actually increased sin. Because before the law came, sin was there, right? It still led to death. People were still dying. I mean, we still had the flood, still had Babel, right? Sin was still there. But once the law came, the amount of sin could start to be quantified. And what the law did was it wasn't just that people by chance started sinning a lot more once the law came. No, what the law did was it revealed hearts that had inherited sin and death from Adam. It was like the MRI or the CAT scan. It just revealed what was already there, right? It didn't cause sin. It exposed sin. Tell a child or an adult for that matter, to not cross over a line and watch the rebellious part of their heart be exposed. Even now, think, I'm like, I don't even know where the line is, but I want to cross it. And God knew this. And so one of the things the law did was God was graciously exposing the sin that already existed in the hearts of the people. Right? Jesus knew this. In John 2.25, speaking of Jesus, it said, it need, He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows what's in there. He sees the heart. And this is why Jesus taught that sin was not just an out there problem, but that it was an in here problem. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it is from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's a matter of the heart. The law exposed the heart. And many of you, you've, you've experienced this firsthand, right? The more, the more you've delighted in the law of God, the more you have enjoyed his word and followed his ways, what has happened, the more sin has been exposed in your life, right? You, you, you think back to who you were 10 years ago and, and 10 years before that. And man, God is so gracious to not expose all of our sin all at once, like bam, right? He's gracious. He's so much more gracious than we are. He's patient. He's so much more patient than we are, right? So as we delight in his law and his word, as we follow his word and his ways, he starts to uproot and expose the sin that still needs to be dealt with, the sin that still resides in our hearts. But when he does this, listen, this is a gracious thing of him. That should not cause us to despair. Listen, if... If the Holy Spirit, if, if God is revealing sin that is in your hearts today, that should not lead us to despair. Why? Because of the verse, because of the truth of verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Most literally in the original, this says where sin increased, grace superabounded. 
It hyperabounded. Grace is the greater power in this passage. It superabounded. And so, yes, because of Adam's sin, there will be some who remain in sin. There will be some who remain spiritually dead. There will be some who stand condemned before God. But the good news is that Jesus came to defeat sin and death, and through him, God's grace is superabounding in the world. And I believe that. And I'm not a universalist, but I believe from this text and others that where sin has increased, grace has superabounded all the more. I believe that Christ is more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. God's grace is superabounding in this world and transferring people from being in Adam to being in Christ. And church, if Christ is your representative, then you are no longer condemned. You are justified. You are declared right with him. If Christ is your representative, then you are no longer spiritually dead. You are alive. If Christ is your representative, you are no longer ruled by sin. You now reign in life. And you get to be a part of God's grace super abounding through his world. Church, the fact that Christ is your representative, this should cause us to be humbled. It should cause us to be thankful. And it should also cause us to be confident, optimistic, and assured in Christ. That God's grace has abounded to you and it will continue to abound through his world. We have a representative before the Father, church. This is good news. And church, this should stoke in us a fire to go, to go bless the city and the world to go share the glory of God's grace to the nations. For we know that where sin increases, grace can superabound there. A superabounding grace, it should give us a spirit of optimism in regards to Christ's work in the world. Christ is so much more powerful. His grace is so much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. And this truth should also comfort us this morning. Because maybe as I've preached this, you've been reminded of some of the wounds that you have because of sin and death entering into your world. We all have wounds in our hearts that sin and death have caused. Maybe we had fathers and or mothers who, who failed us. And they continued to allow sin and death to invade our families. Maybe we've had pastors who have allowed sin and death to invade our churches. Maybe we've had governmental leaders who have allowed sin and death to invade our governments. Maybe we ourselves have allowed sin and death to invade our hearts and our lives, and we're suffering the consequences. 
But church, here's the good news this morning. Where sin has increased, grace can abound all the more. And it can happen in our hearts, it can happen in our families, can happen in our churches, can happen in our governments, can happen in our world. The work of Christ can completely cover, restore, and undo all the effects of Adam's work. Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. And church, we no longer have to live in Adam. And so let me ask you this morning, are you in Adam or are you in Christ this morning? Are you living like you are in Adam or in Christ this morning? Are you still fighting to represent yourself before God? Oh, that you would see God in His wisdom knew it was best to provide for us a representative. He knew this from the beginning, church. I mean, ever since the beginning, we saw shadows of our great representative who was to come. The same God who caused Adam to be in a deep sleep, who pierced his side to take a rib to create his bride. That same God came himself and willingly went to the cross, had his side pierced, and for three days laid in a tomb in order to create his bride, the church. That same God who called Adam to cultivate and keep the garden, that same God after his resurrection was himself mistaken for the gardener at the tomb. That same God who Adam did not trust and disobeyed in the garden, that same God came himself and in the garden of Gethsemane perfectly trusted and obeyed the will of the Father. That same God who allowed Adam to take and eat of something that was not his, that same God, he took sin that was not his and climbed up onto the tree and was condemned in our place. That same God who expelled Adam from his presence, that same God at his crucifixion ripped the curtain of the temple from top to bottom so that we might enter his presence again. That same God who watched Adam open the door for sin and death to enter the world, that same God has opened the door of himself for righteousness and life to come to all those whose faith is in him. That same God who saw Adam be conquered by Satan, sin, and death has himself dealt the death blow to the enemy that we might conquer Satan, sin, and death in him. That same God who Adam thought was holding out on him has shown us in Christ that he's holding on to us, church. Church, may we praise the glorious grace of God this morning. That in Adam we were ruled by sin, but now in Christ we reign in life. Be humbled by this, be thankful for this, and be confident in what Christ has and is accomplishing, all because of the glory of his grace. Let's pray.